We're going to do things in a slightly different order this evening. Uh, we typically begin on Wednesday evenings with a time of corporate prayer where we bring to the Lord, um, you know, family matters and also, you know, national and local matters in a time of corporate prayer. Normally we do that first, um, but we are going to switch things up a little bit for a purpose that we'll explain at the end of the teaching time and uh, just try something new for a particular reason. And so for that um, uh, uh, well, just to not waste any more time, let's go ahead and move to Ezekiel as we pick up our survey through this uh, remarkable, lengthy, and very unusual prophecy. Ezekiel chapter 33. And as always, if you have trouble finding Ezekiel in your Bible, just open it right in the very middle. You'll almost certainly hit Psalms or Proverbs or Isaiah. And just go right to the middle, and whatever you hit there, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, just flip to the right past, you know, Proverbs and Jeremiah and Lamentations, and you will hit Ezekiel in, a, in short order. Chapter 33. Once you find your place there, would you join me and stand in honor of the reading of God's word? The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet. He did not take warning. His blood shall be on himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. Verse 6, But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood... I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak the word, the warn, excuse me, do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Let's pause there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we stand before you, uh, word in hand. We ask that you would help us uh, to grapple with ancient words spoken um, in, a, in, a, in a far away and bygone land. And you would help us to understand uh, how they are meant to live unto us. What they have to say to us as we see them through the lens of what you spoke to your prophet so many years ago to a people far away. Help us intellectually to grapple with the layers from which we are disconnected from this text 
and then help us in our heart, in our spirit, uh, to hear the word of the Lord. In Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. Okay, this summer semester has been a bit different. Number one, we have picked up where we left off in the spring to pick up this study through Ezekiel. It was supposed to be 12 weeks. Uh, it looks like it's going to be uh, 20 weeks once it's all said and done. Something like that, 20 installments. I was gone last week. I'm going to be gone next week. And so Don and I are doing a little hopscotch, a little like, you know, hot potato. You know, you take it, you take it. And so let me just catch you up. Um, as I did a couple of weeks ago, but very briefly, um, so that we can kind of understand where we are in this study of Ezekiel. Chapters 1 through 24 of Ezekiel find Ezekiel essentially as a preacher, and he is preaching to the captives in Babylon. That is the nation of Israel, who had been conquered by a foreign king and carried away into captivity out of their land 650 miles to the east to a foreign place. His preaching during those seven years, five years Ezekiel sat in captivity. He was called by God at age 30, and then he would spend the next seven years from 30 to 37 preaching a very specific message that was sort of tailored to and surrounded by the pending fall of Jerusalem. So the four elements to his preaching to the captives were he was compelling them to see their culpability for God's judgment, which is to say, it's my fault, okay? I'll put it in real simple terms. He was compelling them to see their culpability for God's judgment. He was compelling them to see Babylon, this foreign nation, not as an invader, but as God's staff of correction. Maybe familiar with the 23rd Psalm where David says, thy rod, in the King James, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, a rod, a staff, is a staff. It's, it's meant for spanking. It's meant for protection, but it's also meant to whip the sheep back in line when they get out of line. And the discipline of the Lord is, the discipline of the Lord is, is a comfort to his children. See, the Lord disciplines those he loves, just like parents. We discipline those that we love. And so Ezekiel was preaching to the captives to see this foreign nation Babylon as God's staff of correction. Not some kind of an aberration to God's plan, but actually God's plan itself. Thirdly, he was compelling them to stop hoping in something else for salvation. Stop hoping uh, that you'll be freed by the hand of man. Stop hoping Egypt will come to your aid. Stop hoping for anything else for salvation, but instead repent. Repent of your sin. There and only there do you find salvation. Physically and spiritually. Fourthly, he was compelling them to accept the fact that Jerusalem was going to fall. Now this is important because Jerusalem would be, um, Jerusalem falling, I should say, would be like the period at the end of a sentence. 
It would be the flame of hope being extinguished. It's it's capital city Kiev in Ukraine right now. As long as they have their cultural identity intact, they're still alive as a nation. And that cultural identity is reasonably wrapped up in the capital city. And so Jerusalem will fall. That's the fourth element of his preaching for the first seven years of his ministry. That's chapters 1 through 24. Chapters 25 through 32 are called an intermezzo. It is the guitar solo, if you will, in the song, right? The song is continuing. It's one big story, but this piece seems to be unrelated to the rest. It's like we're, we're off doing something else, right? But it's somehow part of the big picture, nonetheless. And in these chapters, 25 through 32, God addresses the surrounding nations of Israel. So first he addresses Israel, then he addresses the nations that are all around her, essentially on every side. Those ancient places are Tyre and Sidon, the cultural heart of the Phoenician people, Tyre and Sidon, independent nation states related by birth. He addresses Egypt, which would be to the south, Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. If you look at a map, they're kind of like all around Israel, to the north, to the east, to the northeast, to the south. Seven surrounding nations and distinct people groups of power and influence in the region. And in those chapters, the judgment of God is spoken over these seven nations. The judgment of God has been allowed to come upon Israel for their sins, but it will not be limited to Israel. The key verse we noted, judgment begins with the house of the Lord, but it doesn't end there. It will be the judgment of God extended to these nations as well. Seven nations, not because they are the only nations whom God will judge, but rather seven nations as a representative compilation of completion. Right? Seven being that number of completion, it is a, uh, a literary device to say that God will judge all the nations of the earth. As prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 66, for by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. However, just as all nations will be judged, so too through Israel and the Messiah Jesus, all nations of the earth will be blessed. So two concurrent promises come from the Lord to the nations of the earth through his scriptures. All nations will be judged and all nations will be blessed. We go all the way back to Genesis twenty-two eighteen. God speaking to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then he offers this caveat, because you, Abraham, have obeyed my voice. It's an interesting thing that's part of the scripture that's often overlooked. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And it is to that message of hope and blessing that we finally turn to in Ezekiel, finally 33 chapters in, it's been just like wrath is coming, wrath and destruction, burning, death, pestilence, war. It's been like, right? 
We've left uplifted week after week. And we finally come to the message of hope and blessing in chapter 33. But the key to this whole thing is found there in Genesis 22, verse 18. The nations of the earth will be blessed because someone else obeyed the voice of the Lord. And you can turn to it. I'm, I'm quoting it just verbatim. In your offspring, Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you, not because they, but because you have obeyed my voice. And this is the key. The nations are blessed because of someone else's obedience. That blessing is assured. It is promised by God in the covenant between Abraham and God. It's promised by God, if you will, in the pre-eternal covenant of redemption, which is the covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to redeem the world. It is, it is assured because God signed both sides of the contract, right? A contract says, you'll do this and I'll do that. And if either of us break the contract, tear it up, it's null and void. In fact, there are potential penalties, right? And so one party signs the contract, the other party signs the other side. But in the case of God's promise to bless all the nations of the earth through the offspring of Abraham, it's God who signs both sides. And we find this symbolized through this, this contractual experience that Abraham has with God. It's going to be familiar to many of you, but let me just walk us through it briefly. God says to Abraham, Abraham, get an ox and a sheep and a goat and some birds. Cut them all in half and put them on half of the bodies on each side of a pathway. And get ready, me and you are going to walk through this path. And this would have been a bizarre to us, but common, ancient, contractual, uh, legal process. And what, what you're doing with, you know, my father-in-law, he, he allowed me to, to marry his daughter. The, this might have happened, you know, in history. He goes, okay, sounds good. You're going to take care of my daughter. You're going to treat her right. You're not going to abuse her. You're not going to neglect her. You're not going to leave her. You're going to take care of her. And I, I'll give you my blessing. I'll stay out of your hair. And when I die, she might even inherit some of my stuff, my guns maybe, all right? And I go, all right, sounds good, pops. However, we're going to walk through this pathway of death. Bloody carcasses on either side. And we're going to shake hands on this deal. And what we're saying is, if either of us breaks our end of the bargain, this is what we get. This is what God told Abraham to do. Get this ceremony ready. The consequences for breaking your end of the bargain death. Only when it was time for Abraham to walk through with God, the scripture tells us that God caused a deep sleep to fall on Abraham. And the, a smoking fire pot and a fiery torch walked, walked through the pathway while Abraham slept. And the ceremony was completed without him. And he woke up and what had happened? God signed both sides of the contract. 
So the blessing for the nations through his offspring is assured because God can't break his word, right? Abraham could fail because Abraham's a man with a fallen nature stained by sin, but God can't. And so since God signed both ends of the contract, it is absolutely guaranteed. And in Jesus, we see both the fulfillment of that promise and the same contractual agreement take place. The person of God and the person of Jesus the Son sign the new contract between God and man. God can't break his word. Jesus can't break his word. We certainly could, but they can't. And so the blessings promised through Abraham and the blessings promised through Christ are absolutely rock solid. The nations of the earth are blessed because of your obedience, Abraham. The nations are blessed. We are blessed because of someone else's obedience, namely Jesus. This is the gospel, friends. But it is a gospel received by the desperate. The gospel is received only by the desperate. Jesus said, the, the well are in no need of a doctor. I've come to heal the sick. The self-righteous don't need forgiveness. They stand on their own two feet, supposedly. I've come for the one who's crying out for salvation, for rescue, for forgiveness from sins. And so to help us understand this very critical concept that the gospel is received by the desperate, the chronology of Ezekiel's prophecies to Israel and the nations are like that. They are judgment and then the offer of forgiveness. One must accept that he stands condemned by default before he can cry out for rescue. The forgiveness is accomplished. The blessing is assured. God in the smoke and the fire completed the ceremony. Jesus, the son on the cross, he completed man's part of the contract. It's assured, but it is not automatically applied. The forgiveness is accomplished. Now, the question is, how does one acquire it for himself? Well, so here we come to Ezekiel 33 and one of the most unique gospel presentations in all of the scriptures. Let's consider first and foremost, if you're taking notes, number one, a metaphorical description. We just read it. Uh, Son of man, speak to the people and say, if I bring a sword and the people take a man from among them and make them the watchman and he sees the sword coming on the land and he blows the trumpet and he warns the people and then if anyone hears the warning and doesn't like run, the sword comes, it's his own fault. It's a meta, like God's like, let's just say, let's create a little metaphorical scenario. This is the Steve Gompers uh, paraphrase. Say judgment comes on a nation and an obviously divine voice of warning, we'll call him the watchman, speaks to this judged nation, and the people listen and flee, then their lives will be saved. If they hear the warning and don't flee, their lives are forfeit, and they have no one to blame but themselves. 
Also, by the way, if the watchman doesn't speak the warning, I, God, who has brought the judgment, will hold him personally responsible for the lives lost in the judgment. Let's just say this happens, right? <laughs> it's a medical, metaphorical description of exactly what has come about for the Hebrews. They have been judged. They are under the judgment of God, and God has made for Ezekiel, or he has made for the people, Ezekiel as a watchman. And, and, and just to be sure, God pulls back the curtain in verse seven. He's like, just so we're clear, <laughs> you know, I've made you the watchman. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. And here we are reminded yet again of the holy fear of the Lord, the minister of God lives under. I mean, he says it right there. Whenever you hear, this is verse seven, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning. If I say to the wicked, O wicked, you shall surely die, and you don't speak to warn the wicked, they'll die, but I'll require his blood at your hand. And and this is Jonah. I don't want to go preach to those wicked Ninevites. God says, if I say go preach to the wicked, if you refuse because you don't want these wicked people to be rescued from their sin, I'll blame you for their deaths. That's a holy fear. I mean, think about it. This guy, Ezekiel, was captured at 25 and carried off to a foreign land. He was hoping to be a priest. That was, he was being trained for it. He, sit, he spends five years sitting silently, in essence, not hearing, that is, from the Lord, on the banks of the river in Babylon with all the other captives, and just his life just stinks. And then at 30, he sees this remarkable vision of God's presence moving about and revealing itself to him. He, he speaks and hears the voice of God, and God says, all right, now listen. I say speak, you speak. Are we clear? <laughs> We've just read, if you're reading the Robert Murray McShane reading plan, you would have just read the same thing in Numbers with Balaam. God says, Balaam, you'll say what I say, exactly what I say, no more, no less. We clear? And he gets them three times. He, he appears as an angel with a sword drawn in his hand. He compels a donkey to speak in order to get his attention just to tell him one thing. You say what I say, nothing more, nothing less. That's a terrible terrible burden to live under and here this guy has been faithfully doing this for seven years his wife has died he's not allowed to mourn her he's laid on his side every day for over a year he's cooked his food using using animal dung as fuel all as pictures of God's message. He's lived out this theatrical message of God. And now seven years in, God says, you say exactly what I say, and nothing more, nothing less. It's a terrible fear, a a holy fear of God that the minister of the Lord lives under. Failure to obey results in judgment on the man that God has called. A call to pastoral ministry can be like that. Um, Maybe I don't want to be like one of those weird pastor people. Maybe I just want to be a normal man with a normal job. 
serve faithfully in the church, donate generously even to the church, but have something of a normal life where like, you know, you come home from work. How was work, honey? Briefcase down. It was good. What's for dinner? Okay, maybe that's what I'd want. And if you don't think that those thoughts rattle around in my mind more times than I can count, especially at the beginning, you are mistaken. But what I realized as a young man was to pursue anything else with my working life would be disobedience. And once I relented to that fact, life with God became a lot more peaceful for me. Not easy, but more peaceful. Because it is a fearful thing to stand in this space and serve in this role. It is a terrible thing to be called upon to be a mouthpiece for God's kingdom. And while the teaching pastor lives with an unusual weight to that extent, friends, we are all called. We are all called. Matthew 28, we are all called to make disciples. First Timothy, we are all called to do the work of an evangelist. We are all called to sow gospel seed, to share the good news, and to do so accurately. As we have breath in our lungs, in our spheres of influence, however great or small. Yes, I might live under a particular fear of the Lord and a particular role in the church, but friends, it's not that different from that which we are all called. We are called a kingdom of priests in 1 Peter 2, ministering to the Lord, doing the will of the Lord, speaking on behalf of the Lord, for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God has chosen to use your flawed mouthpiece to accomplish his electoral purposes. He's chosen to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's chosen to use simple people like you and me to declare the most glorious message. And by golly, we had better live under that same fear that Ezekiel lives or lived under. To help us to that extent, I would like to quote from Colin Smith. He says, let us all live then in the fear of the Lord, look, quote, loving him so that his frown would be our greatest dread and his smile our greatest delight. Well, from a metaphorical description in the first nine verses, we move to a spiritual reality. Let's pick it up in verse 10. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Friends, This is the ultimate description of the heart which has been softened by the convicting word of God. Ezekiel is quoting back to Israel their words. Our transgression and our sin is upon us. We rot away because of them. How then can we live? Well, that's the question. Verse 11 comes the answer. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? This is the answer to the question. Turn, repent. This is the heart of God. I have no desire in the death. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Too often people say, the God of the Old Testament is all wrath, but they like Jesus okay. I like Jesus, you know? Healing people, feeding people. But the God of the Old Testament, he's just, you know, just slaughter them, burn them, kill them. You know what I mean? And here in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, amidst chapter upon chapter of talk of judgment and God's absolute standards, here we find the heart of God on display. We are reminded that he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Second Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The heart of God has always been that sinful man would repent and be saved, the wrath into which we are born. And just in case you feel ill-equipped to be the watchman to which we have been cajoled in the opening section, in case you feel ill-equipped, sharing the good news with the lost in your sphere uh, is, is easy. It's found right here in Ezekiel 33. What is verse 10 except the, the opening point of the five points of Cal- Calvinism? It's the T in tulip. It's, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? It's total depravity. It's the starting blocks of the redeemed. How can we live? That's the question. The answer comes in verse 11. Repent and be saved. Another tenant of the gospel, verse 12. Your works can't save you. And you, son of man, say to the people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. What is this except simply this? Your very best will come up short. God doesn't do judgment day math. You can't be more good than you are bad. That's Islam. That's a perverted Orthodox Judaism. That's Mormonism. That's Hinduism. Just get to the end of the race and make sure that the scales tip ever so slightly in the favor of good versus bad, and you should be okay. This is how Jews who have these scriptures answer the question of how a person can be saved from their obvious sin. God says, The righteousness of the righteous will not deliver him. But also, conversely, your bad won't outweigh your good. Look at the second half of verse 12. And for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. What is that? It's repentance. Repentance and the covering of the blood of Jesus is the only metric by which we are judged. So, verse 10, you are completely depraved and desperate. See, the gospel comes to the desperate. How can we live? Verse 11, the answer, repent. 
and be saved. Just to be clear, your works will not save you. It's not a balancing act. Your good can outweigh your bad. Your bad can outweigh your good. It's all about repentance. It's all about grace. C.S. Lewis was asked famously, a group of his friends were sitting around, what is it, what is it, Clyde, or Clive, that makes Christianity distinct from all the world religions? And he sits there for, I, I think the, the story goes, he doesn't even hesitate. He goes, well, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. The unmerited favor and gift of God's forgiveness. You don't earn it. You can't get it. You can't be bad enough to disqualify from it. You need only repent. However, verse 13, also one tenet of the gospel message, hypocrites will not inherit eternal life. Look at verse 13. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Hypocrites will not inherit the eternal life. To repent and receive the grace gift is not the same thing as pretending, as attending church services on occasion, living for yourself, worshiping the idol of wealth, pleasure, all the the while going through the motions of religion. All of your good stuff will be completely forgotten if you're just playing games because God sees through it. You might be able to fool your friends. You might be able to fool even your wife or your husband. You can't fool God. Hypocrites will not inherit the the eternal life. Fifth tenet of the gospel presentation, true repentance does, though, result in good works. Look at verse 14. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. True repentance results in good works. This is an explanatory, or excuse me, an exemplary list of the action John the Baptist calls the fruit of repentance. It is the fruit that comes from the repentant. You will confess and restore the one you have wronged. You will cease from sneaky business or tax loopholes. You will live a life that is, quote unquote, above reproach. That means people can't peer into the recesses of your life and find gross um, inconsistency with the ethics of the scriptures. You will live that way. You will pursue what is good. You'll be convicted by what is wrong. You will, you will cease from any jumping through hoops on taxes or monies. You will, you, you will bear the fruit of repentance. Why? To earn your way to heaven? No, God's already dealt with that. It doesn't work that way. So why would someone do this? Because the heart that is truly repentant loves the Lord. He loves him. Peter was asked by Jesus, do you love me? Not are you committed to me? Now, love is commitment. But the question wasn't, are you committed? Are you determined? The question was, do you love me? The heart that's repentant loves the Lord. That love is a commitment. It is a steely determination to be loyal and faithful and true. To love the Lord, though, is 
As one who is repentant, it is for his frown to be your greatest dread and his smile your greatest delight. True repentance results in good works. Not in, a, in an attempt to, uh, to bribe God and require him to admit you into his heavenly kingdom. Look how good I've been. No. The heart that loves the Lord wants to obey him. Sixthly, the saved life is the assured life. It's, there's a confidence The saved life is an assured life. Look at verse 16. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. This is the wicked who bears the fruit of repentance, who his repentance is obviously genuine because it fleshes itself out. It's the book of James. You say you have faith, I'll show you my faith by my works, right? None of the sins he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right, He shall surely live. I mean, what a weightless statement. For God to pronounce over a man or a woman who at some point in life, either at 10 or 50 or 85, has turned in genuine repentance from wickedness, from evil, and has sought to to love the Lord and be grateful for his forgiveness, the Lord says, this one has done what is just and right. That's that's a peaceful, assured life. The one who is saved by grace knows two things about his past sins. Number one, they are forgiven by God. Number two, they are forgotten by God. Satan may accuse you. Your memory of past sins may condemn you. Your fellow man may withhold forgiveness from you, but your heavenly Father has cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. So go and sin no more. The saved life is the assured life. And then finally, number seven, God's mercy is greater than man's fairness. This is the gospel, okay? We are desperate How? What do we do? Repent and be saved. Your works cannot save you. Hypocrisy won't fool God. True repentance, though, does result in good works, not to earn your way, but in response to the gracious gift of God. The saved life, then, is a peaceful life because God says, this one has done what is just and right. I know I've done beyond what's just and right. I've done what what is selfish and wicked and evil, but God says this one is covered. The sins have been carried away, as it were, on the Day of Atonement with the scapegoat. This one has done what is just and right. And then finally, the gospel says, God's mercy is better than any version of fairness mankind can come up with. Look at it again with verse 17. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not just. When... It's their own way that's not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he'll die for it. That means it was never never genuine to begin with. You can pretend for a long time, but when push comes to shove and you, you abandon any notion of Christian ethic, it just proves it was never real to begin with. 
Verse 19, when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he will live by this. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. See, God's justice and mercy is, is, is more merciful, more gracious, more generous than sinful man's very best attempts at fairness. This is why liberal theology, democratic policy, attempts at human utopia on earth will never work because they do not start with the starting point that we are inherently sinful and in need of rescue from our sinfulness. They begin with, man is inherently good. If we could just correct the circumstances and the surroundings, then we could usher in utopia and everybody would just be happy and nice to each other. No, they wouldn't because man is inherently sinful and selfish and evil. What then must we do? If the answer isn't utopia by correcting all the circumstances, what is the answer? Well, the answer is not fairness by, God, by man's standards. The answer is mercy. As Vody Bauckham and John MacArthur have both famously said, we don't want God to be fair. Fair would send everyone to hell. We want him to be merciful. And thanks be to God, he is Merciful. So you have a metaphorical description. Let's say this happens. Well, it was happening. Well, then you have a a spiritual reality. This is the state of man, and this is how man is rescued from his sin. Finally, in chapter 33, we have a literal setting. A literal setting. Verse 21. In the twelfth year of our exile, on the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came and said to me, all right, did you catch that? This didn't seem to flow, did it? All of a sudden, he's, what, what day is it? In the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Now, the hand of the Lord had been upon me in the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning, so my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. We won't get into that, because we don't have time. In case we are tempted to think the Bible offers spiritual platitudes detached from reality, Ezekiel grounds God's message about a spiritual reality in a literal setting. This is a spiritual reality in a literal setting. It was a day at a particular time after a particular set of years since Nebuchadnezzar's army carried Ezekiel and 3,000 others away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem being a real place, the exiles being genuine captives of a late Bronze Age war, so too, just as literal and real are these details, so too is the need for forgiveness from a very literal God and judge. See, these specific details bring the readers back to the setting. This is a real place in a real time and real people and a real man speaking a real message about a very real, terrifying spiritual reality. We are in desperate need of forgiveness for our sins. Nebuchadnezzar's army had finally broken through after a multi-year siege of this walled city. 
One man had escaped and brought word to his relatives, his captive countrymen, again, 650 miles away to the east. He shows up after a long journey through the desert, no doubt weary, lips cracked from dehydration, clothes torn and tattered, wounded perhaps from battle, blood caked and dried to his skin, his clothes sucking to them, an expression of horror, defeat, and desperation on his face. It was a real man who showed up. There in the camp of the Hebrews in this foreign land, there's a growing rumble of voices, muttering confused and anxious phrases. Word is spreading across the camp of the Hebrews on the banks of the river in Babylon. The city has fallen. It's over. See, the Bible isn't a fantastical series of stories and tales with heroes and heroine, villains and catastrophes. That's all there, to be sure. But the story of the Bible is a record of a very real people chosen by a real creator God to be used as his instrument of revelation. Through this people, through their victories and their stumbles, their military conquests and a 70 year captivity, through their devout worship and their foolish idolatry, through it all, God would reveal his righteousness, his love, his heart, and his forgiveness. Friends, as literal as is this setting, so too is the reality of your neighbor's damnation. And so I'm thankful. I'm thankful that Ezekiel grounds this message of a spiritual reality that takes place in the unseen regions of our inner world in the unseen planes of the heavenly dimension. And he grounds it in a very real setting for us so that we would know this is not a fantastical tale. This is not a hypothetical scenario. Mankind has a very real problem and God offers the only solution. I'm grateful to find the gospel of Jesus Christ right here (laughs) in this Old Testament passage. Well, That's all we have time for tonight. Let me pray for us and we're gonna transition. Lord, thank you for your word and how in it we find this, um, well, this, this very beautiful but very sobering message of our great need for rescue. I pray that we would live in the fear of our God and Savior such that we would be compelled to speak to preach this gospel. And Lord, may you go before us and soften hearts. May you prepare the land to receive the seeds of the gospel. Make us effective tools, but do more than we could ever do with all of our eloquence or education or preparation. We beg of you to that extent so that we can stand before you one day 
having done uh, what is required. For you have made us watchmen. Help us then to be diligent. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, as I said tonight, we're, ooh, man, I really tried, Don. Where are you? Where's Don? There you are. I really tried, man. Uh, We're inverting things a little bit uh, because what we want to do is we want to offer people um, the extra time, a, um, a few extra minutes at the end to stay and pray. So if you have children who are down in the children's ministry, at 7.30, we do need you to leave the room and go get your kids to be kind to our volunteers down there. But for those who don't have children and who would like, uh, the end of our time of corporate prayer will feature a time to just stick around and pray over the needs of the church until you're ready to go. So Don's going to come now and, um, and lead us in that time.